Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, President Trump and the First Lady have tested positive for COVID-19. What's the reaction been so far? We'll get into that for you. Canada has approved rapid testing for COVID-19, but other countries have had it for some time. What took us so long? And Labor Relations Board has refused to intervene in the case of the school unions and the Ontario government's back-to-school plan. We'll get some reaction to that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As you might expect, COVID-19 dominates the news once again today uh, and dominates the news from the White House uh, south of the border. Uh, Yesterday it was uh, confirmed that uh, White House aide Hope Hicks uh, was uh, testing positive for COVID-19. And uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, President Trump was uh, musing on Fox News about what might happen. She did test positive. I just heard about this. She's a hard worker, a lot of masks. She wears masks a lot, but she tested positive. And I just went out with a test. I'll see what, you know, because we spent a lot of time, and the First Lady just went out with a test also. So whether we quarantine or whether we have it, I, I don't know. You know, it's very hard when you're with soldiers, when you're with... Uh, airmen, you're with uh, the Marines and uh, I'm with and the police officers. I'm with them so much, and when they come over to you, it's very hard to say stay back, stay back. You know, it's it's a tough kind of a situation. It's a terrible thing. So uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, who knows? Well, what happened was uh, both he and the first lady did test positive, uh, with uh, news that has actually uh, reverberated right around the world. Uh, to get some reaction, uh, please to welcome back to the program Brian J. Karam, executive editor of Sentinel Newspapers, and of course a political analyst that you see on CNN quite a bit of the time too. Uh, on a very busy day, Brian, thanks for joining us for a few minutes. Appreciate the time. Sure, glad to help. What's uh, what's the reaction around the White House press court today? <laughs> well. Uh... A little bit of shock, but there's also an, a, a bit of an inevitability to it. Uh, the president uh, doesn't practice social distancing and has continued to have rallies against uh, health guidance. And they don't uh, wear masks in the White House. So a part of it is like, well, we're surprised, but also surprised that it took this long. It's, uh, it, you know, everyone's wishing him the best of health, but we're also hoping that Everyone else who uh, gets this virus gets the same kind of medical attention he does. And in the U.S., that's problematic. Notwithstanding the fact that he doesn't wear masks and, and mocks people that do, uh, he's tested, what, Brian, on a daily basis? At least not once a daily, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, to our understanding, he's tested at least once a day. He said in a briefing at one point in time that he was tested multiple times in a day. I don't understand the reason for that. They later cleaned up that guidance and said no, that he just meant once a day. But he's tested quite frequently, and there are uh, places in uh, in the United States where people still wait 10 days to get the yeah. results of their tests and have to wait days to get tested. So he has the convenience and the health care that not many in this country can can have. And one thing we've discovered in talking to some of the experts uh, over the last number of months about the, the virus, Brian, is that you don't know how it's going to impact any one individual. Uh, some have what they call mild symptoms. Uh, uh, you know, they don't require hospitalization. Uh, Boris Johnson ended up in ICU, of course, uh, at, at one point. He seems to have recovered. Uh, are you concerned about the information that's going to be coming out of the White House about the, the status of the president and the first lady? Well, we're always concerned about the uh, information coming out of the White House because we've been lied to so often. So this would be par for the course in that regard. And, of course, there are those that have traveled with him in the last few days who've told us that um, they thought it was just 
um, him being tired, that he was exhausted from campaigning, but that there has been a physical toll on him, and others thought that he did indeed have uh, COVID-19. He has uh, appeared on a couple of occasions to be kind of out of sorts and listless, and we don't we we don't know what happened last November when he went to the hospital unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. We still haven't been told what happened there. So, yeah, I think that any information coming out of this White House regarding his health is suspect for a variety of reasons. Well, and there's let's face it, this is more than just the president's health, and I think everybody wishes that he and, and the first lady well. Nobody wants to see anybody suffer because of this virus. But the president of the United States uh, being ill uh, is, is world news. I mean, this is going to affect the markets. It's going to affect a number of things on an international level. Well, it's going to affect the campaign. It's going to affect sure. markets. It's going to affect his presidency. It, if, uh, you know, there is a precedent in the United States for that, too, when Woodrow Wilson had a stroke nobody let us know what was going on then and and his wife kind of ran the government for a while so yeah there's a there's a great deal of concern we're 32 days away from an election we don't know how it's going to impact the election we don't know if he won't be able to go out and campaign like he has his his campaign is effectively over at this point in time and uh, um unless he decides that he's going to go out and and do these things against, you know, health guidance and put his own health at risk. What we that that horrible debate will be the last time you'll see President Donald Trump in public, probably before the election. Two weeks from today, well, not today, but I mean uh, the fifteenth. Two weeks from now is is when the next uh, presidential debate is scheduled at this stage. Uh, is there any discussion at all about postponing that or, or canceling it altogether? I mean, because that falls right within There's the quarantine period. There's all kinds of discussions about postponing it. We don't know what's going to happen as of yet. Um, whether it's canceled, whether it's postponed. If he has no symptoms and he's fine two weeks from now, I guess they could have it. But um, he's already. Hope Hicks has shown some symptoms of, of COVID-19. The president, we're told, has shown some minor symptoms of COVID-19. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, it's 14 days from the last time you test positive. He's tested daily. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see what happens. But I would suspect if he has any symptoms at all, like I said, we've probably seen the last of him in public before the election. Brian, what about the reverberations within the White House? I mean, we know all about the virus and how contagious it is. Uh, and one of the things that the experts always tell us about is contact uh, tracking once somebody is testing positive like this. Uh, there's a long, long list, I'm sure, Brian, of people that have been in contact with the president over the last week or so, uh, either in the White House or in other places. I mean, this is a rather onerous task to start tracking those folks and, and testing them now. Yeah, and it's diff- made more difficult by the fact that the White House staff doesn't routinely wear masks, and mm-hmm. nor do they social distance. And, you know, Chris Christie was in a room with Trump for a couple of days prepping for this um, debate, and then he went on TV, and during the debate, most of the people that were there for Donald Trump sat without masks in the audience. He was six feet away from uh, Joe Biden and screaming at Biden and screaming at Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace was on set uh, yesterday, so he was in the office. Yeah, there's that contract tracing is going to be difficult at best because of how the president uh, conducts himself publicly and how his staff conducts themselves. It's a nightmare for health officials trying to figure out who may have it and who will have to be quarantined and who will have to be tested.
Well, and therein lies the problem. I mean, if they start doing this and they start getting a plethora of other positive tests uh, from some of those people, as you say, the campaign is essentially over for him anyway. Yep. And the question is whether or not, you know, uh, Joe Biden says he gets tested daily, so perhaps he'll be all right, but the testing doesn't mean that you're that you're not going to get the, the the virus. It just means that you don't have it when they tested you. So he's probably got a week to 10 days of sweating it out himself just to make sure that he's okay. It's it's amazing the way the narrative changes so dramatically from day to day uh, with uh, this presidency. From minute to minute with this president. Think about it. A week ago, we were talking about the fact that he doesn't want to give up uh, a peaceful transfer. of He won't agree to a peaceful transfer of power then it became the fact that he didn't do his taxes then it became the fact that hope hicks tested positive and now it's the fact that he and his wife have tested positive that's over a week this administration is unlike any i've ever covered the news cycle circulates through every five minutes there's something new a new atrocity well, and you, you omitted uh, the, you know the fact that he he refused to condemn white nationalists. I mean, and you, yeah, uh, you, you, the entire, you guys, yeah. you guys, you, you guys gave him a real roasting on that yesterday call. afternoon. <laughs> I thought that's what we we're going to talk about today—the roasting that you guys in the press corps, including John Roberts for Fox News, by the way, all of them guys went after him late yesterday, and I thought that was going to be the headline today. Well, that's you know, and that what kills me about that is having covered that for years. When his minions get up and say, look, he already condemned them, it doesn't really matter whether they believe that or not, because the white supremacists heard what he said on stage and are acting as if it's a call to arms. So who cares what you say after the fact? And you can come out with a bullhorn on a national stage and say, stand back and stand by, and they hear that as their new slogan. Then you can say on the lawn, on the White House lawn later, or have your other minions say, not live, not on national television, oh, no, I really meant to condemn them. They know you didn't mean that. And they're not going to react to the second bullhorn call, which is is really just a whisper. They're going to listen to what they heard on national television during a debate. And the fact that he doesn't understand that his words have consequence and the fact that his minions don't understand that, and there are some of them that I know who really aren't racist and really aren't white supremacists, they still don't understand the power of the bully pulpit and what the man says. And it's a danger to us, particularly going into this election, since he said he won't have a peaceful transfer of power. What he's told you is he's not leaving the White House and these are the people he's going to use as his shock and terror troops to stay there. Brian J. Karam, executive editor for Sentinel Newspapers and, of course, a political analyst on CNN. Busy day for you today, Brian. Thanks for taking some time for us today. Sure. We're off to see the wizard. Take care. You betcha. Stay well. Uh, this is raising all kinds of questions, of course, about the virus itself and the second wave of uh, COVID-19. Uh, try to get some clarity on that. We're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Rodney Rodia, professor and chair of clinical laboratory science program at the College of Health Professionals at Texas State University. Uh, Dr. Rodi, good to talk with you again. Hope you're doing well. Good morning, Bill. I hope you are as well. What a crazy week. It's been just, well, uh, and obviously the news. I mean, we heard about Hope Hicks yesterday afternoon, and uh, the president, of course, saying, yes, he was going to get tested as well as the first lady. Uh, What does this do to the conversation, the national conversation, about uh, how to handle this second wave? 
Right. Well, thanks again, first of all, for having me on. It's it's obviously an important day, and it's been quite a week. Let me start by saying first that um, I do um, hope and pray that the president and his family and those who may be uh, exposed to this virus a speedy recovery. This is not an infection that um, I would wish upon anyone. And let, let's just lay some context down, Bill. I mean, sure, again, please. here we are. We're on October 2nd, 2020. We've been following this thing since last, really late December, and really 213 countries and territories around the world now have reported over really almost 35 million cases and over a million deaths. And in the United States alone, you know that we're at about 210 plus thousand deaths and almost seven and a half million cases. So what I'm going to start with is what's just happened with this positive test for the president and his wife and Hope Hicks and, and probably others that are going to show up soon is that no human being is immune to this virus. You can do everything right. You can, you can physical distance, you know, short of staying by yourself in a cave. uh, And even that is not a guarantee. So it's a, it's a, it's a reminder with a, with a bullhorn reminder that public health matters and viruses don't care who you are and where you live, how much money you make, what political party you are, what color you are, what ethnicity you are. It just doesn't matter. Viruses are going to virus. And, and again, I'm, I'm upset and continue to be upset that uh, we continue, at least some of us continue to ignore the gravity of this problem. And I hope this is a public health transition for people, not only in the U.S., but others who might doubt the seriousness of, of this infection. So, so I think it's going to change a little bit, I hope. I think it's going to change the landscape of how the country might be looking at this virus. We're entering the fall season, as you just mentioned, fall and early winter. Uh, we are, while we are kind of seeing uh, over the past you know, month or so, at least some leveling, but some increases depending on what U.S. US states you're talking about, we are entering kind of what I would consider a danger zone. Uh, because we're entering fall and winter, people are going to be indoors again. We still don't know if this virus is going to um, kind of come back with a major surge as a second wave. I would, I wouldn't be surprised as most experts are. And, and I'm just worried. I'm worried about uh, what what may be going on. Um, you know, if, if you go back to the virus pathology, uh, there is grave, you know, great concern here by many people because the president is 74 years old. Um, and that category of age is about a 10 to 11 percent mortality risk. He's a white male. That's about two times as likely to have major issues. And he's and he's got some you know minor health issues with respect to kind of being pre-diabetic and things like mm-hmm. that. So we've we've got some things to watch, um, and 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 not excluding what's going to be probably a frenzied weekend uh, with White House staff and other people that were with the president and his staff, including Biden's group and everyone that was in the debates. Uh, you also have to backtrack and remember the virus could be incubating. Mm-hmm. I mean, a great test doesn't matter because it's only a point in time. Uh, you don't know. You're, you're going to have to test for several days, if not weeks, to kind of make sure everything calms down with those groups of people. The uh, the contact uh, tracking is going to be just enormous here. If you look at uh, well, just Absolutely. look at what he's done over the last seven days. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be a it is going to be a frantic pace uh, within that group of people that were not only in the um, in the debates, 
but on Air Force One. And then you've also got to backtrack and think about uh, anybody the president may have, you know, interacted with with some of the um, some of the interactions with rallies and other events that were going on before the debate. So they're going to have to backtrack and and probably use tape and other things to try to figure out who the president, you know, was intimately shaking hands with or in close contact with, as well as his, his wife and others. So the public health officials, again, what's frustrating about this is, you know, in some of these some of these things, you in hindsight, you can always back up and talk about what could have been done, but now you're going to de- devote massive numbers of people and hours to trying to contact trace this, and it's just frustrating, you know, to kind of to know that many things we've been screaming about for six, seven months now, and um, I just hope that the world takes notice, and certainly here in the United States, that this is serious business. I, we do, too. It certainly t- changed the tone of the conversation over the last little while. Doctor, thank you, as always, for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Bill, and you guys be safe up there. You, too. Thank you so much. Dr. Rodney Rohde from uh, Texas State University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday morning, uh, the uh, federal government uh, was making announcements about testing, which, of course, seemingly is that much more important now because of uh, of the possibility and probability, I guess, that we're moving into a second phase of COVID-19. Uh, the prime minister made a, a very important announcement yesterday morning. Here's a part of it. Indeed, yesterday, Minister of Public Services and Procurement and the Minister of Health announced the purchase of 7.9 million rapid point-of-care tests from Abbott Rapid Diagnostics pending Health Canada approval. Well, this afternoon, Health Canada authorized that Abbott ID. We can now be deployed to provinces and territories with deliveries coming in the coming weeks, Mr. Speaker. Uh, certainly sounds like good news, but there are those who are questioning, uh, well, even what kind of testing we should be doing these days. Try to get some clarity on this. We're pleased to welcome to the program Ketra Schmidt, who is an associate professor in the Center for Engineering and Society at Concordia University. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Bill. Thank you, because uh, uh, there's a lot of questions about this. We keep hearing about testing. We've seen the long, long lineups uh, everywhere, of course. People want to make sure that they're going to be on the right side and on the safe side of this as well. Uh, what what does the news from uh, from the federal government yesterday mean to that whole process? Well, I think it's great news, because if you can have testing with uh, fewer delays, um, it really reduces people's uncertainty of what to do in the period that they're waiting. It reduces the risk that you actually develop a testable case of COVID in the, in the meantime. So even a 24-hour test is often 48 hours. Um, and so that does give you a bit of time uh, to move further along in the progression of a disease that it could be um, detected at that point. So it's really good news, uh, but we need to think about how we deploy this test in a way that's maximally beneficial for the health of Canadians. So what kind of strategy should be employed? It's a really good question because uh, separate to this, Air Canada is also um, has their own testing strategy and they have begun testing uh, rapid care, rapid tests in um, their employees. So airlines are really pushing for the ability to have rapid tests there. Um, and that sur- surely would save the airline industry. On the other hand, though, let's think about teachers. Let's think about mm-hmm. people being able to access health care. So it would be amazing to have a strategy where teachers got tested once a week, right, every Monday morning, and they could know whether or not they were going to spread COVID within the classroom. That might be a great strategy. 
we could also think about using it in healthcare so that people don't have to wait to access health services. And that's one of the concerns I think a lot of folks have. I know that uh, yesterday on Global News, I was watching on Global National, and uh, uh, what they eventually said, because there's a lot of questions about just how effective this is going to be, but how people, how many people actually can actually use the test. And we're told with this announcement from the Prime Minister yesterday that it's probably still going to be sometime into the spring of next year before we as a, a, a public can actually get these. So they're going to have to target. But And I guess the, the major concern here is availability, isn't it? Right, right. And then it, we still are going to have to ration this, right? 7.9 yeah. sounds like a lot, but it's not all of the um, people in Canada even, much less more than one time. So it's it's not unlike what we went through in the springtime with uh, PPE, where you know everybody said, yes, this is what you need. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is we don't have enough. Uh, it's probably going to be the same way for this as well, but uh, only a certain segment or a small segment. The most at-risk people, I don't know exactly how they're going to make that determination. But we can't that's expect really that we're going to – pardon me? No, Go ahead. No, it's just a really good question, right? Like how, how should we deploy these tests for best results? But I think it's a little different than PPE because we do have testing. We have a testing infrastructure. Uh, many people are getting their test results back in 24 hours. Uh, so at least in, in Quebec, right? So now we're supposed to have a 24-hour test. It doesn't always happen that way. It's sometimes 48 hours, but people are getting results. So five minutes in 24 hours or 48 is a big difference, but that's very different from March where a test took five days. Well, absolutely, and that was one of the criticisms, as I recall. Uh, we talked about that in the springtime, uh, that uh, you know, some people are waiting up to 14 days for the, for the test results, and by then, of course, it's really moot because, you know, who knows what's happened in that period of time. So we've improved that, and it's a story, I guess, Professor, that we maybe have overlooked, but we shouldn't. Uh, we've talked about, you know, obviously the race to try to develop a vaccine. We've talked about some of the the, uh, the methodologies that have been developed to deal with the people that actually have COVID, and we're getting better at that because the recovery rate is much higher than it was back in the springtime. But there has also been, I guess, through this whole period of time, uh, a great deal of work put into testing itself and, and methodologies of testing. Right. So this has been a, a tremendous effort on so many um, fronts. And, and what I was going to talk about uh is, is how we find a way to make this maximally beneficial. Mm -hmm. So creating strategies that um, either benefit the economy or benefit people's health, to me, is the interesting research question. So someone else has done this tremendous amount of work to create a more rapid test, but we still have scarcity. We generally have scarcity. So the idea is how do you figure out how to pair this new rapid technology in a way that gives the most benefit. So to me, that's probably frontline essential workers. You would think so. As you say, people in the front lines, healthcare, uh, emergency responders, things of that nature. Uh, there's also a question. I just wanted to get your read on this uh, about the efficacy of the test, uh, because there were some people yesterday, in spite of the fact that the announcements made and these tests are going to be here, that said, yeah, but we're not so sure that uh, that the, the Abbott rapid COVID-19 test is the best one. Uh, is it, Within the research that's going on like that, is there concern about just how effective and it is and, and how, how reliable the results are? So the thing that we all have to uh, remember with anything related to the coronavirus is that it's all very new and very uncertain. So we're still seeing very uh, appearingly conflicting results for a, a lot of different issues. For example, the ability of children to spread 
coronavirus. There's mounting evidence that they don't do a good job spreading it and also that they're just the same as adults, depending on what papers you read. So the same thing with this test. It's all very early days. Um, but even, there's no test that's perfect. Every test is going to have some rate of false negatives and false positives associated with it. And having the ability to do a screening test earlier, even if we know that test isn't perfect, is something that's really valuable, right? So we could, all kinds of testing that's within the interest of public health has this issue. And the same with vaccination. There's no vaccine that has 100% coverage, I don't think. But the it's still very valuable to us if we get some coverage. If you look at something like influenza, sometimes we get coverage as low as 15%. It's still valuable to prevent that disease. Um, and then we have something like uh, testing for um, tick-borne disease, for Lyme disease. That, that test has a very high false positive rate, but we follow it up with a second test in those cases when we think the person's symptomatic. So a test doesn't have to be perfect in order to be really valuable. In the case of a test like this, where it's a screening test and we can have it back so quickly, um, there's still a lot of value in a test, even with an imperfect um, testing rate. Nothing is. Yeah, the, the focus of the debate that I've seen anyway, I tried to read up a little bit on this uh, this morning, uh, was, was, I guess, the way that the test is actually employed and, and what it's actually looking for. I think the one that we're talking about here now that is, I guess, most widely used, uh, it actually uh, detects the, the virus's surface protein. Uh, no, the DNA, rather, but there's another one that does test the protein, uh, the, with the antigen test that they say is far more effective. Uh, but I, that's, that's nothing definitive at this stage, though, isn't it? As you say, this is early days, and we're really just kind of going, feeling our way around here to find out what the best way to do this is going to be. Right, and there's been a lot of discussion about what was driving the false negative rate uh, with with earlier COVID testing, because there was some evidence at one point that the false negative rate for any testing was much higher. Uh, I spoke to um, an infectious disease specialist who felt that that testing was much more accurate when it is the swab up the nose, and, and the problem with blood testing, but I haven't seen that in all literature. So I still think it's early enough that we have to have a lot of um, caution before we state something definitively. Yeah, and, and as I say, is this is this is new for an awful lot of us, uh, not necessarily in your field, but for us in the public, and we're a little apprehensive, I guess, about exactly what we want to do, because it raises so many questions, and I mean, I get these on a daily basis after somebody like you comes on Ketter and, and starts talking about, you know, you should do, this is what's going on. Uh, how often should I be tested? You know, I got tested back in June. Should I get tested again? Is, is there a definitive answer for that? Well, this, this is a great question, right? And so what my expertise is sort of how do you use the tools that we have available that are technological and behavioral to reduce risk for the public at large? Mm -hmm. And on a personal level, that's absolutely the case that you sort of think, oh, I got tested once already. Is it worth it to go get tested again? You know, now it's been seven months. So, yeah, if you, if you meet the criteria for testing, um, I think it's actually really important to get tested. And there is a screen that is applied by the provincial health authority to determine whether or not you should be eligible for testing. And one of the big things that we're having right now is community spread. So it's really important to screen it out. For each individual case, it's a low probability. Even what we consider high positivity might be 3%. That's still a low probability that you as an individual have it. Um, but it's worth it to get 
to screen out that chance so that you're sure that you're not passing it on to others. Is, is this similar to other medical conditions, though? I mean, if you are high risk for whatever reason, maybe a pre-existing condition or something like that, uh, would it be on the, the, the wise side to simply get tested more often? Not, not unlike somebody who has a cardiac condition, probably goes and sees the, the, the cardiac doctor a lot more than I would every annual, you know, for my annual checkup or something like that. So, I mean, you, you look at apparently um, some politicians are getting tested yeah. every day, right? Um, to me, that's, yeah, it's hard to say on an individual level, but to me, in the absence of a reason, I don't think that's the best use of medical resources, right? So from Mm -hmm. my perspective, it's important to make sure that as individuals, we're not spreading it. Um, some, some people, perhaps many people are asymptomatic, but in general, I, think it makes sense to test if you believe that you've been exposed or if you're starting to show some symptoms. That's probably the best we can do. Um, In general, though, if you are going in for medical testing or some kind of medical appointment, you do need to get a COVID test, at least here in Quebec. That's a great place to have a five-minute screen because now you have to go twice. You have to get a test to make sure that you can go in for your treatment so that and you do that a day before, they get it to you within 24 hours, and then you're cleared to go to the hospital. Having one trip where you can stand outside, get the test, and then you're allowed to go in would be a real boon to uh, efficiency and just getting more people health care. It's a balance, though, isn't it? I mean, you know, you want people to be safe, and if you feel as if you need the test, uh, you know, and, and if, as I say, you meet the criterion. But at the same time, we don't want to overburden the system, do we? I mean, we can't have people lining up just because I just want to be on the safe side because that's what's making those lineups as long as they are in some situations like that, and you still want to make them available for people that really need it. Absolutely, and these, these are really difficult trade-offs, right? So, so that's um, where my interest lies is how do we ensure that these resources are used in the best way possible. But we also can't completely remove um, this idea that maybe some people are getting over-tested. To my way of thinking, if people are really anxious and it's stopping them from um, fully engaging in life, I think it's probably worthwhile for those people to get tested. I doubt that there is a huge problem with people getting over-tested, right? If we're still having community spread, that means there's a lot of people out there who are um, spreading and perhaps they're symptomatic and choosing not to test. There's also a widespread idea that people are really, really ill and they would just know that it's coronavirus. But there's a lot of people who get it and say, well, I thought I just had a sniffle or I felt perfect and I had no idea there was anything wrong with me. And they, in fact, had coronavirus and were potentially spreading it. Uh, Yeah, and that's why the numbers are always, uh, you know, rather flimsy because we're not sure i mean these are the reported cases that we we talk about on a daily basis here and who knows how many people are out there that that ha- probably did have it but uh, but never actually went through public health or anything else so we have to worry about that i guess the the, the other takeaway here and i know your time is tight uh is that when we talk about 2.5 million uh, uh kits uh for the testing it, you're right it's a big number but they are not all coming at the same time uh we're gonna have to ease into this we're told that uh, hundreds of thousands will be available over the next few months ramping up to the, that final total so uh, I think we have to be careful and cognizant of the fact that we can't just all rush out and say, I'm going to get a test on Monday now because they just got 2.5 million of them. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I think I think actually what you said is the outset. It's the long lines. Um, part of what keeps people from getting tested are the delays in getting the results. So you know that you have to kind of lock down during the delay. And it's scary to think like, okay, do I have everything that I need if I can't leave for five days, right? And um, so that I, I think that reducing the testing delay is going to reduce the wait time and lines and also the, the wait time at home for the results. So I, again, I'm not worried that people are getting too many tests. I think, I think testing is right now one of the best strategies as long as it's paired with careful behavior. Well, exactly. Yeah, you can't just lean on one thing and say, there, I'm doing that, so I should be okay. Uh, but that good advice. on It's always reassuring, uh, Professor, after our conversations, and I think you've added a lot of clarity to, to something that's uh, some, very important to all of us, of course, as we keep hearing stories about the numbers going up and, and the second wave that's upon us, and testing is going to play such a key role in that. Thanks, as always, for your time today. Have a great weekend. I know we'll talk again soon. Okay, always a pleasure. Take care. Professor Ketra Schmidt, of course, from Concordia University. Uh, and the, the news yesterday from the Prime Minister was, uh, was great news right across the country. I mean, look at the numbers in Quebec, especially, as, as Professor Schmidt was talking about, uh, staggering increases over the last little while, and here in Ontario, too, which is why the, the Premier has declared some hot spots, uh, the GTA, the Toronto area, of course, and Peel region, and, of course, uh, the Ottawa region, are all considered hotspots, not unlike uh, what the Quebec Premier has done with Quebec City and with Montreal, which is why the uh, the Premier was so happy to hear about the testing kits that are coming up. This is what he had to say. There's no one that's been jumping up and down, uh, you know, screaming for the rapid tests more than I have, and I had a very lengthy uh, discussion with the Deputy Prime Minister on, on Sunday, along with everyone except the Pope was on the line. I was calling everyone across the board. I uh, had a great conversation with the Prime Minister uh, yesterday about the rapid test and very grateful that they were listening. Now Abbott's coming out with a rapid test today. Isn't, isn't that amazing? The announcement, I, I'm very grateful. And as we say, they'll be coming out over the next few months. Uh, the 2.5 million that we talked about it, we, is going to happen over a period of time. But as uh, the, the professor told us, and what everybody has been telling us over the last little while, if you feel symptomatic or if you're nervous or if you think you have come in contact with somebody uh, who has COVID, yeah, get a test. Best advice there. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, Labor Relations Board has ruled that uh, they will not intervene in the case between the uh, high school teachers unions. And for that amount, I guess the elementary teachers were involved in this too. Just about every union, uh, including the French Catholic and French public boards, uh, were all on side with this. And they were going to make a complaint to the Labor Relations Board about working conditions in the schools because of COVID-19. Their contention was that, well, the province didn't go far enough in in making it as safe as possible. Uh, This is a conversation I had with uh, the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Harvey Bischoff uh, a few weeks ago and this is what he had to say. It is ab- absolutely doesn't meet the safety requirements. It falls short in very many aspects. Um, you know, maybe it's not the absolute cheapest uh, but it doesn't come near to meeting the need for resources that they that they should be putting in in order to have a, both a safe and effective return to school. 
Uh, which is still a concern today. And, and now that we've had other cases of, of COVID-19, positive cases, of course, in some of the schools, I guess that's really ramped it up, which is a, kind of a head-scratcher then as to why the Labor Relations Board won't even hear the case against them. I want to bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, business professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, good morning. How are you today? I am fine, thank you, Bill. Good. Listen, I'm glad you were able to join us today because I do want to talk about uh, some of the reverberations from the positive test for, the, for Donald Trump because uh, no, there are worldwide and economic yes. implications of this yeah. as well. But before we do that, uh, a, a concern here about the teachers, and, and you know the story here, and you've heard both sides of this argument, uh, and, and I know the Premier's uh, response, I'll paraphrase it, is, look, at, there's no perfect plan. Uh, and this is the best we can do. I'm not so sure that it is, but I, th- I think the teachers have a legitimate beef, and I think we ha- th- this has to be an ongoing dialogue. I mean, you're not in the classroom right now. I mean, who is, right? Mm-hmm. And well, well, Go ahead. Well, Bill, I was going to say that I think what the Ontario Relations Board has said here is that they are uh, not going to hear this case without prejudice. That means they didn't decide not to hear it because of the merits of the case. They didn't even consider any of the arguments what they basically said was the case brought forward was too broad. You, you didn't have a specific instance that they could deal with. So typically what happens in the Ontario Labor Relations Board, I don't know, I'm, I'm a gym teacher, I'm trying to teach my class in a gym, and look, I, I think it's unsafe. I think these are unsafe conditions. So I bring forward a very specific example of why it's unsafe. Both parties get to make their case. The Ontario Labor Relations Board says, yes, I agree with that teacher. This is unsafe. Here's how you need to remediate this situation. Instead, what came forward was this broad-based thing that just said, well, the whole plan is unsafe. Uh, you know, and they had five different components of this. The class sizes were too big. We need to do something with the ventilation. We need to adopt some international ventilation standard. And the La- Labor Relations Board said, we just can't deal with that. You're asking us to, to set a precedent because and this precedent idea is very important, if, if we uh, try to adjudicate this, then they're going to build a new school, and you're going to come forward and say, well, look, at that whole school has to be rebuilt because it's not safe. And they go, you've you got to bring us a specific example. So I think what the, the four unions are going to do is over the weekend, they're going to brainstorm and see if they can find some very specific examples perhaps one from each of the different groups, so one from the elementary teachers, one from the secondary teachers, one from the French language teachers. Here's a specific case in this school of a situation we deem is unsafe. Then they'll refile, perhaps on Monday or Tuesday of next week, and they may still get their adjudication. I just think what they tried to do was too broad, and I think this is why the Labor Relations Board said no. I know this is an apples-to-oranges comparison, but it kind of reminds me of uh, what went on with the impeachment hearing south of the border last year. Uh, when they said, you know, you can't just charge the guy. You've got to have one or two specific charges, and they had to, they narrowed it down to two, uh, which didn't work, as we all know. But, I mean, so, so in other words, they're going to have to be laser-focused here for these guys to even listen to this. Yeah, and, and, and part of this, Bill, is that when we are talking about the education system in Ontario, we've got great diversity city by city, county by county, what is considered normal in Thunder Bay is different in Toronto, which is different again in London, and is different again in Hamilton. Uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all system. There's got to be some flexibility. So you just can't say, well, the whole system isn't, isn't safe. You really need to bring forward an example. And then what typically happens is this. Go back to my gym teacher example. The Labor Relations Board sides with the teacher and says this isn't safe. That means that one specific school board should make adjustments, but trust me, all the other school boards take a look at the case, look at the results, and say, well, we've got the same situation in that school and that school. Let's fix it there. So you can still get what you want, but you have to go from the specific to the general. 
Will they actually follow that? I mean, you know, because what the Labor Relations Board is going to adjudicate, if in fact they do this, uh, it's not binding, is it? Oh, I don't know if I'd say it's not binding. If If you chose to ignore the Labor Relations Board and were to leave an unsafe situation, then you're opening yourself up to liability. In other words... Uh, so uh, I'm a teacher. I'm worried about my safety. Here's a specific example. The Labor Relations Board says that teacher is right. Make changes. Well, I don't think I want to make those changes. If that teacher were to get injured on the job or, heaven forbid, they were to die on the job, there would be some massive liability lawsuits, and you can't argue, well, I didn't, I didn't know that it wasn't safe. Look, the Labor Relations Board told you it wasn't safe. So even though... You know, in theory, they can't force compliance. It would be a crazy person who didn't choose to comply. But how far up the ladder do you go? I mean, if it's Marvin, the gym teacher that we're talking about here, and, uh, you know, they they rule in your favor and they say, right, okay, that's at at your school. Uh, Is it the Board of Education? And the Board of Education is going to back and say, well, it's the uh, Minister of Education. The Minister of Education is going to say, well, it's the Premier, uh, because they didn't give us the money or these are the directors they gave us. I mean, where where is the liability if, in fact, they're found to be true? Well, again, I think you're, you're, you're correct. There is a chain here, but it does start with the boards of education. So you bring a specific situation in this board. The Labor Relations Board says that situation isn't safe. Okay, that board, let's just call it the Thames Valley Board, which is the one in London. You must yep. fix this. Uh, and they go, well, we'd love to fix it, but we need some money. Oh, minister, do you have some money? And the minister says, well, I don't have any money. Oh, premier, do I have some money? But, you know, you know it starts at that board. You actually have got somebody under your thumb. And then the question becomes, as the others try to rectify that situation, that may require more money from the province. And, and look, I think, if I'm not trying to defend Doug Ford's government in any way here, but I think we need to remember that we've never had a situation like COVID before. I do think it's important at some point, I don't know when that point is, to get our schools back into operation, in part because parents uh, of kids have had to take time away from work. They can't do their jobs because they've got to care for their kids. And I'm not talking about it as simply babysitting, but, you know, if you have a 7-year-old, 8-year-old, and you're expecting them to be in grade 3, you live your life a certain way. Suddenly now you've got to try to do homeschooling or be home for them. It's, it's just not, it's not an easy situation. So if we're getting back to some kind of normal, whatever that normal is, getting the schools operational at the right time is important, and we need to do it right. I think Doug Ford thinks he's got it. If it turns out the Labor Relations Board to a specific case says no, you know, you need to put up plexiglass screens in every classroom. That's what you need to do to give security. Okay, you know, I think now, Mr. Premier, find the money and do it. Uh, as we know with our Prime Minister, he's very good at finding money to deal with these situations. <laughs> Well, we'll see what happens, and, and your point's well taken. I mean, Harvey Bischoff, uh, who we just heard from on my, my voice clip there a few minutes ago, uh, had a- actually agreed to join us to talk about this today, too, and then canceled it at the last minute, uh, which I assume, uh, because of the number of times I've had Harvey on, I mean, something else came up. I'm assuming there's probably a conference call going on right now to say, okay, guys, what are we going to do? How are we going to plan this? So I'm, I, I'm guessing you're right, Marvin, but I'll probably hear from these guys in the next week or so. Yeah, I think Monday or Tuesday, and I think what you'll hear is they'll real file, refile their complaint, but they'll have some very specific examples of people who are not safe, people whose safety they're concerned about, and then the Labor Relations Board can deal with that. Okay, let's move on, and we'll see. I'm sure we'll talk about that again next week when they come back with the part two of this. Uh, Donald Trump positive test uh, for COVID-19, he and, and his wife, the First Lady. Uh, as soon as the news broke, uh, this is the leader of the most powerful nation in the world, or one of the most powerful nations. I'm sure you're going to get an argument from China on that. Uh, what happens to world markets? What happens to, to the business community when something like this? Now, there's no indication at all that the president's in grave danger, but he is t- tested positive for 
a virus that can kill you. Uh, what kind of an impact does that have? Well, our friends in the market don't like uncertainty. So he's just injected with this quite a, a bit of uncertainty. And if you are saying, well, I wonder what might happen, it isn't that much of a stretch of imagination to create this chain of events. Donald Trump is positive for COVID. Oh, my gosh, he's going to get sick. He's 70-something or other and has comorbidity factors. My gosh, that man could die. Well, what if he dies four weeks before the presidential election? Can, can we have a presidential election? Do, do we have to stop the election, put somebody else's name on? What if America elects a dead man as president? Who becomes president? Is, that, is it automatically Mike Pence? Could they appoint somebody else? Will this have to go to the Supreme Court? But look, the Supreme Court only has eight people, or will it be nine? Will it be... So in their mind, Bill, these nice people have created circles within circles, windmills spinning around, and they go, oh, my God, and then we've got all the concern about would the public accept this? Donald Trump, as you know, has inflamed a bit of the rhetoric here. Earlier this week made a call out, a shout out to a group called the Proud Boys. Mm -hmm. Look, if, if this goes on, if Trump were to die and then suddenly you know, Biden's elected, is there going to be riots in the street? Is there going to be other turmoil going on? Where could this all lead? And unfortunately, when you don't have a clear answer, the market imagines the worst. And that's why today uh, we've seen currencies around the world drop and the American dollar rise. We've seen markets falling because everyone's just imagined this could be the beginning of some tremendous turmoil. And which is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, inside baseball information here, oftentimes they hide medical conditions about world leaders. I mean, certainly the, the Russians and the Chinese have been doing this for years, but yes. uh, so have the states. I mean, you know, FDR, of course, was, was crippled and, and dying, actually, uh, when he won his uh, unprecedented third term. The people didn't know that until after the election. I mean, he was never photographed in the wheelchair during that period of time. Uh, I, I, Harry Truman, I think, actually had a heart attack at one point and was kind of keeping a low profile, and they didn't know even talk about that sort of thing so I, I guess that's really to try to temper the reaction that you might get from things like markets and and, and other influential leaders yes Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson actually had a stroke in office and it, mm. for a while I think it was his wife that we think who actually ran things to try to cover it all up well what's interesting here of course Bill is and I, I, I again I apologize to your listeners I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any stretch of the imagination but this all broke last night with guess what a tweet from Donald Trump Yep. Now, I, I'm not saying anything here, but, you know, Mr. Trump's tweets are not always the most understandable or even the most correct. Uh, he may have tweeted something. I'd like to have a little independent confirmation. I'd love a doctor to stand up and say, yes, you know, here's the actual test. Maybe he tested positive for something else, or maybe he, he took a test. I, I just don't know. And to see the world fall apart because of a Donald Trump tweet that again has me quite concerned. If it was anyone else in the world, if this was George W. Bush, Barack Obama tweeting that, you know, I tested positive for COVID-19, I would not doubt it in the least. But this is Donald Trump, and oh, I don't know. And so, I, I, you know, why am I saying this to you? Look, he had a disastrous week this week. Tuesday night was one of the worst debates, if not the worst debate in American history. Uh, most people have have torn a strip off him several ways come Sunday. Yesterday there was some tapes released of Melania talking that really weren't very complimentary. Look, I, I want to lay low for a while. What's my argument? Can I tell you? I'm just ducking you. No, but oh, oh, I, I have to go into quarantine now. I can't be out there for the next couple of weeks. I, I hate to even think that out loud, but I, I think it's a possibility. 
You're not the first one. I mean, you're going to see very much along those lines on some of the social media uh, posts that I've seen uh, so far this morning as well. Like, yeah, show me. It's like show me the money. Show me the test. Uh, you know, show me. Show me. Show me and by the way, bring your tax returns while you're doing it. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I know the White House doctor has weighed in and say, yeah, they're going to be resting and, and working from. So, you know. But there's still no proof that that's in there, and I get that. Given the the propensity he has for uh, let's play, you know, fast and loose with the truth, uh, that's a concern. It's a question. But even if you take him on the word that it is, yeah, uh, you know, that it is a positive test, and he's going to work from home. Uh, we have no indication that uh, that it's going to get worse. I mean, we saw what happened no. with Boris Johnson, of course. I mean, he ended up in ICU. Uh, but there are some concerns to walk down that road. He's 74 years old. We're told he has a, a, a slight diabetic condition. Uh, we're also speculating, of course, many doctors are, that he's got a lot more wrong with him physically than that. So he's a, he's a high risk. Yeah, so a couple of things here. Uh, yes, a, a positive test does not mean the worst. Boris Johnson was certainly the worst-case scenario, and we now believe was very close to death at one point. But Aaron O'Toole, the new leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, tested positive. He's back in office. Uh, the leader of the Bloc Québécois tested positive. He's back working now. A positive test does not automatically mean the worst. But again, play the game. Suppose he really does have a positive test, but let's also suppose that it starts to get worse. Will we get updates on those things? Or as you pointed out before, sometimes the White House guards the president's health very secretly. And, and so, again, it just raises questions at a time when we just don't need any more questions. We've got one of the most volatile races for the presidency that we've ever seen, and now we've got even more questions than we did just two nights ago. Are you suggesting that you don't trust what Kayleigh McEnany says with the, with the press corps every day? Is that what you, well, is her or some of the other nice that? people who work for the White House, they, they have been known to uh, cloud or shade the truth. Well, uh, we're going to find out, I guess, in the next little while. If this is part of a strategy, as you say, to kind of lay low, it's a little weird to be doing this so close to an election, especially when he's trailing by anywhere from 8 to 10 points, depending on which poll you see. Right, I, and I agree with you. It's a weird strategy, but it's not outside the realm of possibility. Uh, play on sympathies. You know, I didn't like the man, but oh my gosh, he's dying. That might make you change your mind about him. And so uh, maybe that would be his most effective strategy. Shut up for two weeks, play the sympathy card, and see what happens there. We'll be tracking it. Marvin, always interesting. Thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you. Glad to be with you, Bill. <laughs> Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.